Hi. Hi. How are you? Oh no, I think. I just take a little, little bit to load. Can you okay, hear me, Sydney? My, sorry, my internet was like, perfect. Yes, I can. No, you're me. fine. Okay, awesome. All right, okay. so for our viewers right now, um, we are Mental Health First Aid. We're run by Mental Health Global Network, and Mental Health Global Network creates mental health education programming services. And today we are here with Sydney, and Sydney started My Color, My Experience, which is a platform to talk about, um, you know racial injustice, black mental health, all the kind of things going on right now and people's personal perspective and experience on them. Um, Sydney, could you tell me a little bit about it in your own words? Sure. <clears throat> so I started My Color, My Experience a couple weeks ago, kind of just in the light of all these racial um, and social injustice issues that are going on. Um, <clears throat> so basically what we're trying to do is create a safe environment for Black people to speak on issues of racial and social injustice that specifically target them. Uh, we want to speak on these issues and their solutions to these issues and how to mobilize change. Um, and further in this space, we want to open it up to white people as they're encouraged to listen uh, to these experiences of black people inside and outside of this country. We want to give them insight and encourage them to further educate themselves on black history. And I think it's really important that I emphasize the encouragement of white people in these discussions because these issues that specifically target black people can't be solved without having white allies because the power lies with them um, because of their privilege. So we have to be unified in that sense because if we wanna see any results of the resolutions, we have to work together. Uh, so for now, these discussions have been facilitated via Zoom uh, when we discuss topics uh, weekly and we have people from all different uh, walks of life involved in these discussions from uh, different ethnic backgrounds to different occupations, those which include the law enforcement, uh, healthcare, education, uh, those being some of the three major institutions whose systematic practices are rooted in racism. Um, so we delve into the history of these institutions and other systemically racist institutes that, to have a better understanding of how they operate at um, how they operate as racism is so deeply ingrained in them and we want to find ways to cultivate uh, these solutions so we know that these conversations about race can be very difficult um, but and and traumatic for black people in that they have to relive some of these experiences that they've gone through um, but we have to be able to break that barrier of discomfort for black people and for white people because it's almost like the least extensive thing that you know white people can do is to sit in an uncomfortable conversation and then you know learn from that so we yeah. we encourage you know people from everywhere to just to listen because i think that's the first start and then further educate themselves right and like you said it's very difficult i would imagine to talk about, you know, these traumatic experiences. So the mm -hmm. least we can do um, mm -hmm. as members of the, you know, the white community is to just listen and to empathize and to educate ourselves because mm -hmm. we're not the ones going through it. So if it's an uncomfortable conversation, then, you know, we don't, it's not uncomfortable for us. It shouldn't be right. at least because right. we're not the ones who have suffered 
So how can people get involved in these conversations or sign up to be a part of them? So um, recently I've been, well, I've, I sent out, I send out emails weekly um, talking about what the next discussion is going to be. So I've had kind of just like word of mouth, um, you know, contacting friends, having them contact other friends, but in the next week or so, I plan on having, you know, a logo for it that I can like post on my Instagram, creating an Instagram for this uh, space of discussions, um, just to kind of gain more traction. And this is obviously yeah. a fantastic platform. So anybody who wants to be a part of it, DM me your emails, and I will put you on that list. So you can be updated um, when these discussions are and pick and choose whichever ones you want to join. Absolutely. And we've posted about it. We're, we're going to keep posting about it. And anybody um, who doesn't have Sydney's Instagram or contact, message us and we'll connect you with Sydney. So it's definitely important to get involved. Yes. Um, so amazing. So thank you so much again for being here and starting off with that extremely powerful statement. I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, Black mental health and kind of the overlooked nature of mm -hmm. mental health in black communities. And it's not really taken as seriously. Um, maybe it's kind of, we have this idea that like only right. white people face uh, mental health issues, which is so far off statistically. Mm -hmm. So if you would like to talk a little bit about that, I'd love to hear your perspective. Okay, so I definitely have a few things to say about this. Um, but yes, it is an issue uh, within the black community that we don't take mental health very seriously, um, specifically with the older generation, like our parents and our grandparents. Most of the times these people, because these people have deep rooted ties to religion, um, it sometimes, you know, teeters into mental health in that you can be told by your um, your older, your elders to, you know, just pray about it if you want to talk or if you want to talk about your emotions and it's not that prayer isn't powerful if that's what you believe but that's not solely going to fix the issues that I'm struggling with in my head and a lot of these ideals about religion have been rooted in slavery because in that time period religion and church was the only place that black people could seek refuge there weren't mental health professionals or places that enslaved people enslaved people could go to talk about what was going on in their head essentially religion was all they had and um further when black people have thought about mental health and we're talking about people in the old generations being having it being seen as a white issue is because partially the way the media portrays it um typically the most heinous violent acts that are documented um are via the news so, for example, in America, we have this ongoing problem with gun violence and school shootings. And although that these are super horrible circumstances, historically, what race has been, you know, commits these acts of terror? And it tends to be white people. And yeah. what is the explanation for these acts, for the reason that these acts have occurred? Um, so we think about Adam Lanza was, had a psychiatric diagnosis, and he was, this, you have James Holmes right. has a psychiatric diagnosis, and he was the movie theater perpetrator. You have Dylan Roof, who has a multitude of proposed diagnoses like autism spectrum disorder, generalized anxiety, substance abuse disorder, depressive uh, depression disorder, and he was the Charleston perpetrator. The only, or one of the only instances that we think of where um, where white men have not been labeled 
the mental health or a mental diagnosis is Eric Heron and Dylan Keyboy, which were the Columbine shooters, uh, perpetrators. So they were labeled as cold-blooded killers, but that's one instance amongst all other instances right. that have been seen um, in America. So when we see these outlandish acts of terrorism on our own people, our own American citizens, they have been defined by mental illness. So what's generally assumed in the Black community is that if a person doesn't carry out these egregious acts, like school shootings, then he or she might not have this mental health issue. And it's invalidating to the person because it, you don't have to murder someone in order to struggle internally or struggle mentally and be heard. So right. you know, that's that's part of the issue is we need to we need to validate black people in that sense that you're it's not a white issue it's just a people issue um yeah you know that's part of it you have to you have to break that barrier absolutely and but to get a you know something you brought up is that Often in school shootings and in mass shootings and, you know, and movie theater shootings, etc. If the um, person with a gun does not take their own life, they're often being, the police are often capable of taking this person into custody and keeping them alive. And so to be able to keep these white men who have completed mass murders alive um, and, you know, they've been labeled with mental illness, they still pay the price on um, going to prison, etc. But they have the opportunity to go and go to court and to defend themselves um, right. and to, you mm -hmm. know, live the rest of their lives, opposed to black people who are being killed innocently on the streets every single day, um, who have not committed any heinous crimes and who have mm -hmm. cops have kind of acted like, oh, they had no choice but to harm this person or kill this person. So just wondering um, what your perspective on that is. Um, sorry, I don't know if I'm freezing or not, but you froze a little bit. Um, so I think your question was, what was my perspectives on the fact that, yeah, is it better? Okay, it's better now. Yep, sorry, it's probably my fault. No, it's okay. Sorry. My, I hope my internet isn't too bad. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think you're right. Absolutely. Essentially, the, the white men that have committed these acts, if they survive, you know, to, to see the next, to see the next day, and they're not killed on site, or they don't kill themselves, they do have the opportunity to go to even just present themselves in a court of law. And a lot of times we don't see that with black men, because they die on site. And they don't have, they can't fend for themselves. And a lot of times, you know, these people that have been shot or killed by the police or just by other people in general, they, they aren't criminals, you know, they, it's just an act that was done or they're being profiled in a certain way for themselves. And that's, you know. Where, where do we, where do we, where do we fix that? Where's the start of that? Is it within the justice system? Is it within changing the mindsets of other people? Like, how do we combat that issue? 
and there's layers to it and I don't have the answers to it, but I do like, yeah. I, it's a problem and it's a frustrating problem for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So mm -hmm. when we do our mental health first aid trainings and our mental health intervention trainings, we just recently added in a section about racial trauma. And I think mm -hmm. that's long overdue because we talk about all these different mental illnesses and the effects that they have. We everything from um, bipolar to anxiety, to depression, to eating disorders. And racial trauma is such an issue in this country. Um, it's caused by discrimination, by police brutality, by either experiencing something firsthand or witnessing something happen as a bystander. Um, and I wanted to know um, if you had anything that you could share about racial trauma or, um, you know, maybe how someone's experience, um, maybe if they're not even affected themselves, but just being a, an American in this country and witnessing police brutality um, of people of color and people that look just like them on the news and on Facebook and on Instagram and how that might affect their social, um, their mental health. Right. Um, uh, so to put it simply, it's, it's PTSD. Um, when we're talking about trauma in the black community, whether you've had a personal encounter with the police or a racist person or not, um, we can think about that in terms of social media as these senseless uh, murders have been recorded or, you know, the phenomena of Karen, you know, um, being videotaped. And it's it's horrifying to be a black person in general. And then especially now in this social climate, because not only do you have the weight of everything that's going on now on your back, but you also have, you know, the trauma from your ancestors as well. You carry that, you know, throughout your life. Um, so you know, the thoughts that go through our head when we pass police officers in the street or in our car, wherever we are, is taxing on our mental health because the first thought that you think of is, what am I doing wrong? How can I get out? Who do I call? Will I survive this encounter? And that's literally every single time I leave my house. Like, even if I'm just, you know, going down the street or I'm going to a store, I'm going to the mall, I'm going to hang out with friends, it is something I'm always thinking about is is there a police officer around are there people who are engaging in things that i don't want to look like i'm engaging in just in case something goes wrong like you're always thinking of the worst case scenario and it's it's mentally exhausting because why would i want to have to think am i going to survive long enough to come back to my house that night and it's honestly it's not even about leaving your house because brianna taylor was sleeping she was in her home in the comfort of her own house and she was shot to death and there has been nothing to be done about it. So, you know, it's, it's exhausting because I'm thinking about survival constantly, not just because I'm a human being, but just because I am a black woman or I'm a black man. And it shouldn't be like that because you don't think about those things when you leave your house, but I think oh. about it every single day. And I've always thought about it since I was a child because you have, you know, those those talks with your parents, or at least I've had the talk with my mother, you know, what happens if you have an encounter with a police officer? That is a very, very normal discussion that happens at a very young age in a black household. And that does not happen in white households because it is not no. a problem that white people that white people endure. And it's not it's not their fault that, you know, that you grew up white and I grew up black and that we have these disparities, but it's just the reality. And it's, it's exhausting, it's mentally exhausting to always be afraid of what could happen. I know that, especially nowadays, I can't go out and ride my bike by myself because 
I don't want to be alone. God forbid something happens. I always have to have a friend with me. And I can't enjoy, you know, activities by myself because of those things, because I'm scared of what could happen. I'm afraid if I get pulled over at nighttime, I don't like to leave my house at night anymore because I don't want to be wrong place, wrong time type of situation. So, you know, you're always going through these things in your head and it's a constant battle and it's not fair because whether you're doing something or you're not, I shouldn't have to fear for my life for just existing. Right. I mean, I cannot imagine how emotionally exhausting that must be. And if you think about how common uh, mental illness is across the board, one in five people suffers from mental illness. So this exists within white communities, black communities, Hispanic communities, all people of color, which means that people are already facing a chemical imbalance in their brain mm -hmm. or um, depression or anxiety, PTSD right. as a result of something that happened to them as a child. So if you think about already facing those types of things, already having social anxiety, already having the fear of leaving your house or going to a public place, just because of the way that your mind and your body work, and right. then to add the pressure of just being um, discriminated against or being a target, having a target on your back because of the color of your skin. I mean, that's something that no matter how bad your mental illness is, no matter how severe as a white person, that you will never experience. Exactly. It's those, it's those two things coupled together, you know, because I've had my own mental issues. I've had family that have had that too. And it's like, not only do I have to struggle up here, but I'm struggling outside too. And, you know, this is something that I can't fix on my own. And if I can't talk about those things with other people, that is hard in, in and of itself. And then if I'm also dealing with what's surrounding me, that's out of my control. Both things are out of my control. Like, how, how do I fix that? How do I help myself get better if I'm invalidated in two different scenarios that, you know, determine my life in a sense? Absolutely. And that's why it's so amazing that you're having these conversations and that you're creating this platform for people to come together and share these experiences. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's something that not a lot of white people think about or pay attention to. And when you think about white privilege, people often take this so personally, oh, I worked so hard to get where I am, or my parents were immigrants as well, or X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. But you, it's about your basic ability to carry throughout your day and your daily life without the burden of fear. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about mental illness, and we talk about the difference between feeling having episodes of depression and feeling depressed one day and feeling anxious one day and actually suffering from depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. It's based off of how much this mental illness impacts your ability to live out your daily life. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about it, um, it's so crippling to have those mental illnesses affecting your daily life. And I know I already said this, but again, to just have the privilege to not have the way that you look or the family that you came from or the community that you live within affect that um, and, you know, be an added burden as well. That's white privilege. And right. there's so many ways that it exists, but it's so important for us to have these conversations because I think every time I have another conversation, I figure out another way that I'm privileged as a white person. Right. And I think it also, you know, we talk about it's socially, it's mentally, it's racially, but it's also politically. Um, you know, our political climate is something that I don't think anybody would have ever dreamt of in I don't even know how long it is very scary to live in this political climate because the political climate has such 
an effect on the social and the racial climate. And because of that, you know, that further adds to the trauma. And if you are experiencing mental health, you know, issues, that's just another added thing, you know, you fear for what is going to happen in November, you know, should I live the rest of my days out in this country that I was born in? Or should I move just because I'm so scared that, you know, I could die under this presidency, you know, and that's, yeah, it's it's so many things that are layered on top of each other. And then you just put that, you know, you couple that with your mental health, and it just, it, it's like a blow up in your head. Absolutely. You hmm? I mean, thinking and talking about the election is such an important point, because I think it's um, had extremely low media coverage. We know that voter suppression is happening. Um, mm -hmm. In New York right now, there's hundreds of polls available, you know, compared to thousands that usually exist. That's happening all mm -hmm. over the country. The mm -hmm. lines are extremely long. People aren't wearing masks. I mean, it's yeah. just this entire climate of fear. And it's one of the most important elections that we will have in this country mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. ever most likely as long as things don't get periodically worse over time <laughs> and so i think it's an important you know point to raise that you as an american who were born and raised here think about whether or not it's worth it to stay in your own country and mm -hmm. to get out and leave and you know i heard someone say the other day well then why don't they just leave why don't they just i you know there's this, you know, compared to the South, people in the South, you know, it's so racist there and there's so much criticism there. So why don't they just come to the East Coast or people who, you know, are facing this police brutality in America? Why don't they just move out of the country for their own safety? But it's not that simple, right? It's not that easy. It's expensive. And you're also giving up all of your friends and family in your hometown that you've known your entire life. And so it's not easy to just pick up and leave. But to have to seriously consider that is really scary. Yeah. And I mean, I've definitely I know myself, my mother, my sister, we've all we've come up with, you know, what are ways that we can escape this country if that happens? Because I don't want to stay here. Like, I'll just put that point blank, period. I don't want to stay in this country if that's what I would have to endure for the next four years, because it is terrifying. I was terrified four years ago, and I'm even more terrified now. And I didn't think that that could be possible. And, you know, this is and it's sad, because, like you said, it's not that easy just to pack up from the South to the North and leave. Part of the reason is because, like you said, it's extremely expensive to live. I live in New York. New York is ridiculously expensive for no reason. And if I'm coming from a place like Atlanta, Georgia, or Florida, or wherever, you know, I can't just pack up everything and go buy a house and live in this climate or, or live in this area. And a lot of times, you know, because of the the racism that is so deeply ingrained in our country it's not only easy because it's so expensive but part of the reason it's so expensive is because of things like redlining because of things you know that have been put in place to make it not possible for black people to flourish you know in certain areas so i have that in the back of my head you're right you don't want to leave your family you don't want to leave some place that you've been so accustomed to being in your whole life just because you have this extremely powerful man that is taking away your rights day by day by day. And, you know, as a black woman, it's even scarier because black women are invalidated all the time. Um, you know, even further than black men, black trans people, black gay people, like it's, you know, there's so many layers to these topics that build on your mental is, 
and it's sad and it's it's how how what do you do <laughs> like what how do you fix that problem and the problem doesn't start with people like me it starts with people like you so you allowing me to have this space to talk about it you know it's the first step but what what's next i think that's you know the question is how else can we start to fix these issues so that we can both live comfortably because it's not even about equality anymore i think that 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 has been thrown out the window it's it's about equity and it's about justice and we have neither of those so how what what do we do and i'm it's like i'm asking you but i'm asking everybody else because yeah. i don't answer i don't know and because i've lived in this area for so long and these things happen hundreds of years before me and they'll probably continue to happen hundreds of years after i'm gone and I don't want my kids to live in this sort of climate. I don't want their kids to live in this sort of climate, but I know that that's probably what's gonna happen. And it makes me even weary, like, do I even wanna have kids? You know, because yeah. I, I don't want them to grow up like this. I don't wanna be, you know, another mother who loses their child at the hands of the police for no good reason. I don't wanna have to deal with that trauma. I don't think that those women should have to deal with that trauma either. Mm. So it's a, it's a constant battle. I think, yeah, and you know, I can't, relate to that but I can relate to thinking about gun violence and mm -hmm. in my the way that I something I always say is that if gun rights um you know don't you know if, if gun violence does not change by the time that I have children I would not feel comfortable sending them to school but mm -hmm. imagine because of all the school shootings I'm from East End, Connecticut I'm right outside of Sandy Hook um, mm -hmm. That was a super traumatizing experience. And then I think of that just because of the gun rights and the NRA in this country. Then to think about just sending out your child to go to the grocery store, to go to the park, to play with their friends on the playground and wondering if a police officer who is supposed to be there to protect them will or will not take their life. And I cannot imagine the burden or the fear of that. Um, and to not be able to, to be scared to have children in this country, it's important that we, you know, that there are more black people in this country that we that you guys do have children that you do have families because it's so important that white people don't continue to have this idea that we hold priority over you know this country and we hold priority over the rights and over the decisions and it's not fair for you to have to question that and then if we think about you know women's reproductive rights um, I know I'm getting a little bit off topic, but again, <laughs> how that's been repressed in this country. And I actually saw a statistic the other day, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe it was correct, that in America, a woman, a black woman, is three times more likely to die during childbirth than in any other country in the entire world, including yep. third world countries. Mm -hmm. That was a shocking yep. statistic to me. Right. Exactly. I think, and that is true. I have some friends who work in the healthcare system. And so they're, they're in it. And they have told me there is some racial discrimination so prevalent in the men in the healthcare system. And, you know, that's so dangerous because these people are also governing our lives in a way, you know, they don't have guns, but they have the right to deny us certain, you know, treatments that we might need. And, you know, further, we think about Donald Trump in imposing that whole rule regulation on trans people and their rights in the healthcare system it's it's so you just have to realize how deeply embedded racism is and being like you said having the fear of having children because you know that number one you just might not survive childbirth or the fear of you know that's one thing and then if you do survive childbirth you're thinking about are my kids even going to make it past 12 
because Tamir Rice was 12 when he got shot, you know? So can my kid walk to the grocery store and pick up a bag of Skittles because, you know, you think of things like Trayvon Martin. Can I drive in my car and not fear that I'm going to die three days later, just like Sandra Bland, you know? So it's all these things on top of each other. And then you think about, you know, your male or female counterpart, like the things that they're going through. Um, you know, you think about Ahmaud Aubrey, he went for a jog, <laughs> like he wants to go exercise and he has lost his life. And Oscar Grant, Sean Bell, like there's so many names and there's so many names that we don't know about. And I think that's even more of the dangerous thing is because we have what a hundred or so hashtags, but there's thousands of people who have similar stories just like this. So yeah. it's, 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 it's a fear because you fear for the future, but you fear for the now as well. And that just constantly eats away at you. And you don't, you don't know how to fix it. You don't know if I should just live my life and just hope for the best. Or do I protect myself by not having kids? Do I protect myself by not dating or, or date outside my race because I have a better chance of them surviving longer? Um, so it's, it's, it's all, it's, it's so, it's so many different aspects and caveats. And I know that we're here talking about mental health, but it's, you have to talk about these other things as well because they're all interrelated. It's intersectional. Oh, absolutely. Also. And it all goes back towards racial trauma, mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. And that's how it affects mental health. And if you think about what, what are some things that we recommend to do to cope? When we do our mental health intervention trainings, we talk about exercise a lot and how exercise or even just going for a 15-minute walk around your neighborhood can make a monumental difference in your day. Now right. think about not being able to go on a 15-minute walk around your neighborhood because you're scared that you might not come back alive. And the pressure of that and how that not only affects you and your life, but also your children, your family, your community. And so, so what do we do about that? That needs to change because <laughs> racial trauma exists, black mental health exists, black mental illness exists, and we need to have appropriate, tangible ways for people to cope without them being fear, you know, in fear of losing their lives as a result of that. Exactly. I completely agree. I think, you know, I have, like I said, I've had people in my family to deal with, you know, mental health struggles. And I know one way that, you know, my sister, for example, has combated that is through exercise. She likes to, she exercises all the time, twice a day, every single day for like, for years. And that is her way of coping. And it's a fantastic way, you know, releasing those endorphins and staying fit, looking good. Like who doesn't love that? Yeah. But she can't go on a run because she's afraid that she might be gunned down. Like who, like who in their right mind is thinking about I'm going for a run, but I'm going to be shot because I'm black. <laughs> like, you know, that's not, that shouldn't even be a thought in my head. And I, and until this happened, I would have never thought of that either. I literally would have yeah. never thought that I would have been targeted for running down the street or that I would have been targeted um, for sleeping in my home, you know? So it's like all of these different scenarios that you never would have even like dreamt of in a million years are happening right now. Right. It's, it's horrifying. And it's the creation of this culture under this government and you know, our commander in chief, you know, Donald Trump, the president of the United States. And I remember people saying to me when they voted for him, when they were defending, supporting him, and when he became president, that things weren't going to change that much. Mm -hmm. And I knew that they would. And mm -hmm. people talked about, well, things aren't going to change that much. This is just about tax dollars. I'm just fiscally conservative. Um, you know, I only stand with the Republican Party because of 
um, fiscal reasons and financial reasons. But mm -hmm. to say that discredits um, or, you know, kind of means that I care more about money than human rights. <laughs> and also for people who say um, things aren't going to change that much. Well, look how much they've changed. And mm -hmm. so, look, for people who voted for Donald Trump four years ago, that, okay, you made a mistake. Um, you were ill-advised. You were undereducated. But to now go four years and to see the significant change in this country that has existed, that has persisted, the lives that have been lost. Four years ago, we had a black president of the United States. And now black people can't go for a jog in their neighborhoods. So it's so right. ignorant to say that it hasn't significantly changed. And although systematic racism has always existed, I think now mm -hmm. it is more prominent than ever. Um, or at least being brought to the surface more than right. ever. And we're talking right. about it. And that's why it's important. And I think we're frozen. All right, I think we froze. We might have lost Sydney for a second. Let's see if I can add her back. The Wi-Fi is terrible. This is my fault. Thank you guys for being here right now. I'm so happy to see how many people have tuned in today and how amazing this has been to have this conversation. I've learned so much from Sydney today. This is really fabulous. Okay, here we go. We're getting her back. Let's see. Requested to join, so she should be here any second. Thanks for waiting, guys. You guys rock. Not about anybody else. My Wi-Fi and my service has been so bad since COVID has started. I think it's because so many people are working from home in my neighborhood. Let's see. Oh, her phone overheated. <laughs> it's okay. She's coming back. No rush, Sydney. Does anybody have any questions in this conversation that they wanted to add or any topics that they wanted to bring up for us to discuss? Feel free to write in the chat or any thoughts, comments. Okay, let's see. Okay, I'm gonna add her back, try again. Here we go, sorry about that. Sorry, my phone overheated, that's literally oh, yeah. <laughs> So <laughs> you're fine at first earlier it was my service and my wi-fi so i figured it was me okay but so um i i kind of i think we cut off when you were talking right I, I i believe we i was alluding to the point of goodness i don't remember i know i'm trying to think of where we left off i oh we were talking about you know how um how voter suppression is happening and how it this election is so important and how trump um has changed so much in this country and how people are kind of ignorant to that. Um, yeah, and I think actually in this particular 
you know, climbing out, a lot of people haven't really seen or are, are ignorant to the error of his ways. But I think this pandemic has highlighted that so significantly and how, you know, how wearing a mask has become a political debate. And it shouldn't because it's literally over half a million people in this world have died because of COVID. And, you know, on top of that, at you know, we put this, the, the racial injustices on top of that and how it's uh, the president, I think it was just yesterday, is retweeting something, you know, where these men are screaming, you know, white power. It's like, okay, like, what? <laughs> like, how do you do that? Shocking, right? Sh I was like, ugh. It was disgusting. And people in his administration are defending this behavior by saying, you know, he didn't, he didn't see, he didn't hear that one statement. I'm like, this man screamed it three times. Like, how did you not hear that? Also, why is he tweeting that? Why else would he be tweeting a bunch of white people, like, riding on golf carts? I just, exactly. the relevance. And it shows how dangerous and how powerful this man really is. And because of that, people who support him are more comfortable with being overtly racist. Because I don't think that there would have been the issue of Ahmaud Arbery. Maybe it would have happened, maybe it wouldn't, I really don't know. But, you know, but I think that there's a comfortability with the fact that these people killed this man and for two months sat in their home, you know, and nobody knew. And you have to think social media in that sense, because as dangerous as social media is, especially on people's mental health, we would have never heard about that if it weren't for somebody, you know, posting that online. We would have never seen George Floyd if it weren't for somebody recording it and posting it online. And as traumatic as it is to watch things like that, because you're, you're watching someone die, you know, just on your phone screen is so horrid in and of itself. But you never, our eyes would have been, would have been blinded to it if we didn't see those things on social media so i you know appreciate it in that sense and to you know bringing awareness but it's also you go back and forth is something that i've been dealing with is i want to stay informed but i also want to protect my mental so how do i do both when i want yeah. to i need to learn about everything that's going on because it's affecting me but it's also affecting me mentally so yeah how do I do that it's so hard. And, you know, something we always say um, in our trainings, we talk about men uh, mental health versus social media. And mm -hmm. now is kind of one of those situations where we feel kind of a little bit stuck between a rock and a hard place. Right. Usually we say, you know, if you feel like you're spending too much time on social media, if other people's posts are kind of detrimental to your mental health, if you feel this pressure to perform, delete the app. So you don't have to delete right. your account. You don't have to deactivate it. You could just log out or you could delete the app. I know that when I'm on my phone and I go to click on Instagram and I see that it's not there, I'm like, okay, that's, that's cool. I'll take a few day break from it. And it's easier when the app is actually gone. So I think that what we need to do is we need to allow ourselves to take those breaks if we feel mm -hmm. that they are prominent, because at the end of the day, we are, you know, we are so obsessed with social media and we are relying on it heavily right now to get the news because I feel one news sources are not always promoting the right things at the right time. And mm -hmm. there's so much going on right now between the election, between COVID, between black lives matter, um, everything that the news is kind of projecting. Plus we've seen CNN, MSNBC had, you know, people, the police officers shoot at them, tear gas them, mm -hmm. um, you know, repress them from reporting, which is, you know, against her rights and, you know, mm -hmm. um, the constitutional rights that we have been given in this country for free speech and for 
freedom of press. And so we see that repressed. And so we're relying on social media and we're relying on social media constantly to give us um, this feedback and this information. So it is really hard, I think, to be stuck between a rock and a hard place. And so I think sometimes maybe we need to say like, today is my day off. I'm on it seven days a week. And so Tuesday is going to be my, my weekly routine is that Tuesday, the app is deleted from, from my phone. And mm -hmm. maybe Tuesday and Thursday, if you feel, and then you, you give yourself the space to breathe for those two days, to take a break, to kind of sit and reflect. You're still going to be thinking about it. You could still read. You could still educate. You could still watch shows on Netflix. Um, I know I feel guilty when I'm not checking my social media because right. I feel like if I'm not posting, I'm not doing enough right now. Right. Um, and so it, posting is so important. Talking is so important. But maybe it's just about finding that balance that it's okay to take two days off a week. You're going right. to be on the other five. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think I, I kind of did that accidentally um, just because I got I got busy uh, for about two days and I wasn't really on social media that often. When I finally got back into it, I was like, wow, like it's you just you come almost like with a new mindset, like you you refresh, you reset yourself. And I think it's important absolutely to take these social media breaks because social media at this point is just traumatizing. You're hearing these COVID numbers continue to rise, especially in the United States. We're not combating it you know appropriately and then you're seeing you know six black men were lynched in all these different states and there's no media coverage or you know you're seeing this guy sleeping at a wendy's and you know he's shot to death and it's just like all of these things and it's it's hard to hear and it's sad like and you don't know how to to help and you almost feel hopeless in a sense because you're like but all i'm doing is posting like it's not enough blah 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 but it's like how do I use my voice appropriately and how do I affect change, but also how do I protect myself from, you know, going into a dark hole because it can happen so much quicker than you realize and until you're in it and you're like, dang, like, I didn't see myself coming into this point and now I'm sitting in bed sleeping all day because I'm, I'm so depressed and, you know, that's happened to me and I know that's happened to a lot of other people. But it is important, like you said, to take those breaks and to give yourself time to reset and readjust. And you can almost like come back in, to social media with like a new mindset. And even though it's two days, like you, you're just you're you have a clearer mental if you do things like that. If you're not yeah. constantly consuming negativity, um, yeah. But it, it, we, it's hard. It is. We say always, you can't fill from an empty cup. That's a commonly used example in the mental health industry. If you're not taking care of yourselves, how are you going to be there to support others? If your mental health is not up to par, how are you going to be there to speak out for others, to stand for others, to go to protests, to post on social media, um, and to read books and educate yourself? So you have to take those time off. And um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. But one last thing I wanted to talk about before we close today is, you know, you brought up the six black men who were lynched um, and the hangings. And these men were hung, you know, found hanging, and they were just written off as suicides. And then there was no investigation um, into what actually happened. And I mean, I see two horrible sides to that. One, I think the likelihood that those men were actually, you know, completing suicide. Um, I, I mean, I don't know what the likelihood is because it depends on speaking with their family and talking about suicidal ideation that was existing and talking about warning signs and what was going on. But we know that people are being murdered in this country right now. We know that black people are being murdered. And so to completely write it off without going into an investigation is um, completely wrong. And regardless, 
even if those were suicides, then we need to talk about black mental health and racial trauma and that's how, mm -hmm. how that's affecting people in this country. So I think there's something to be said about that. Right. I mean, I think that most people with a brain can know that they, they those were not suicides, you know, because you look at historically what suicide looks like and it doesn't look like a mimic of a slave tactic used to kill black people. There right. is nobody in their right or wrong mind would ever think that I'm going to kill myself and mimic what lynching is supposed to look like. And especially not a black person. That's just not true. And no, I, I don't, I can't think of, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, where somebody committed such public suicide. In that That's way. what I was going to say. So it's like, you know, am I really going to believe that there's six black men, <laughs> six, not one, not two, but six black men who committed suicide all in the same fashion? No, no, believe it. There's no, there's, there's nothing that anybody can say that would get me to believe that these, these men killed themselves because they didn't. And mm. They just did not. And right. I, I, I agree with you. They, I agree that they did not. And also, when you know, you're studying suicide, and you're studying suicidal ideation, and the percentages of completions of suicide. Um, well, for it to happen publicly, is so unbelievably rare and marginally small in the statistics of the way that people complete suicide. Mm -hmm. It is so uncommon. It is rarely even discussed be as a means of suicide. And again, um, to do it publicly in a, in a way that appears as, you know, as if someone's being lynched um, in a way that you said, that, as you brought up that black people have been publicly killed um, mm -hmm. throughout history. I mean, it's just not written in our books. It's not written in our, um, it's just not there. I mean, I study it every single day. We talk about it every single day. Right. It's not, it's not there. And anybody in the mental yeah. health industry, anybody who talks about suicide, who teaches about suicide is, it's, you know, it's very prevalent that those were not suicides. Exactly. I, <laughs> and it's, you know, and for it to happen once, it's kind of like, okay, that's weird. But then for it to happen six times, it just, it doesn't happen like that. It's it absolutely. Um, no. And one other thing before, you know, you end it, I, yeah. I know kind of um, talking to Kelly a little bit about, you know, the persona of black men and toughness or this toxic masculinity, you know, yes. that exists. And because we see it with, you know, just with men in general, having this, you know, the sense of toxic masculinity, but I just wanted to talk about why that's so dangerous for black people. Because um, this constant rhetoric of toxic masculinity and toughness is, is it's taxing on the black men. Um, and because of that, it's not accepted for Black men to show emotion or to talk about their feelings because they're seen as weak. And not only by white people, but as by other Black people as well, by their friends and their family. Like, you know, getting told by, you know, in a group chat with a bunch of guys, like, you're not supposed to act like that. Like, why are you crying? Getting made fun of. Um, and further, toxic masculinity rhetoric is dangerous because it criminalizes Black men. And there's this expectation that black men should act or be a certain way. And because of that, white people expect black people to be hard and hard or scary, you know, which kind of alludes to the whole Karen phenomena, um, which is traumatizing because white women, all they have to say is that they feel threatened by an African-American man and boom, what happens? The cop shows up. Um, and also further that this toughness mindset uh, relates to this, I was talking to my friend about this earlier, relates to this uh, 
thug mentality that we see in the black community and that black men, you know, in order to be validated, they have to, you know, have this hard life. They have to struggle and they have to own guns and they have to sell drugs and in order to be, you know, perceived as powerful. And a lot of people, you know, they don't always feel like that internally. I know me, I don't come from that lifestyle. I don't come from a lifestyle that's not, you know, stereotypically, you know, harder. You know, I didn't grow up around drugs. I don't have a lot of people in my family who have been to jail. I have a lot of educators in my family. And I'm invalidated with that because it's like, I don't feel like, am I? I'm not your stereotypical Black struggle story. I I went to private school. I went to college. I'm continuing to get my master's. Like, I, I you know, I, I have the ability to compete in a capitalist society. So I'm invalidated because, you know, I can't relate in that way. And that eats at me because it's like, within my own community, I don't even feel accepted sometimes. And that's hard as well, because it's like, I'm not accepted by white people, then I'm also not accepted by black people in a way. And, you know, you realize that this, this, this thug mentality that's been created, not only is dangerous in the black community, but white people in turn have been able to capitalize off of that. Um, especially specifically through the music industry, knowing that sex and pain, it sells. And they don't want, they want to hear about your trauma. They want to hear about the experiences that mess with your head because that's what's going to bring them money. Um, They want to know about the people in your life who have died. They want to know about your family members who are in jail or the drugs that you had to sell in order to make a living, in order to be here. And that's, those are the things that are profitable. So you have to constantly relive this trauma that you're going through. And, you know, you're talking about your outer experiences. And then if you have mental experiences or mental struggles in your head, that's not constantly reliving those things. It's not really, you know, it's taxing on you. So we want to hear things like, you know, I had to sell guns and drugs and have sex with all these people, you know, to be validated, but we don't want to hear rappers like J. Cole who talk about social and racial injustice issues. So it further paints that rhetoric of Black people being a certain way and being perceived a certain way, um, you know, in this world. And, you know, that, that also, that's also traumatizing in a sense, too. And that constantly eats away at mental health. I just wanted to talk about that, too. No, it's a super fascinating, you know, point. It's so important to talk about. And how does the divisiveness exist, not only between people of color and white people, but also within black communities? And how are white people perpetrating that and contributing to that? Um, it, like you talked about music and the music industry, there's so many people, at, white people at the top of these production companies, right? Um, and how they're contributing to this culture in a financial sense as well. Um, and I think it's not fair because like we talked about, regardless of you know your history or where you grew up or where you went to school, you still have the fear of going on a run in your neighborhood and potentially mm-hmm. not coming back alive. So mm-hmm. there are regardless of your financial situation, it doesn't um, necessarily contribute to, or I guess, you know, people who, you know, experience poverty, um, regardless of, you know, their color, do experience higher levels of mental illness, but that doesn't mean that you're not experiencing mental illness, that you're not experiencing racial trauma, that you're not, and, and you shouldn't be afraid to, or, you know, feel ashamed to say those things and to say how you're scared and to say how you've been impacted by this because 
all black people are impacted by this. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Whether they've experienced racism personally, which most people have, or whether they've, or they're watching it on the news and they're watching little girls and little boys are watching people just like them being killed for no good reason whatsoever and how that will affect them um, and how that will traumatize them going forward in their life. So, and in terms of um, black men and suicide, we have to, and mental health, um, black men have a higher completion rate of suicide. And so white men actually attempt suicide more, but mm-hmm. black men mm-hmm. complete suicide more. Right. And that's an important statistic to talk about. And why is that happening? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of it has to go towards the fact that there are just generally more white people in this country than black people. Um, mm-hmm. And so when we look at those statistics, they can come off a little bit skewed, but at the end of the day, more black people are dying as a result of mental illness and as a result of suicide than white people are. And so that's something that needs to be discussed. Right. Absolutely. And you saying that, you know, you acknowledge that there's actually 76%, according to the U.S. Census, as of 2019, there are 76% of people in the population that are white. And further within that 60% of the population are white who are non-Latina or of non-Hispanic descent. And with that, there are 13% of people in America who are Black. And that's less than half of the population. That's almost far less. It's barely barely a quarter of the population. And so when we see that Black men are the people who have committed suicide at higher rates than white people, it, you know, it's that disproportionate is what we're talking about. So when we say Black people are disproportionately affected, that's exactly what they mean. They make up barely a quarter of the population, and they are dying at far more rates than white people who make up well over half the population. And so that's why we say Black people, and we don't say people of color. We don't say Hispanic people, because not saying that they're not affected, but they're just not affected at the disproportionate rates that Black people are in comparison to white people. Right. Absolutely. I think that's such an important point to discuss. And Sydney, I want to continue these conversations. So I will definitely be tuning in to your platform and, you know, my color, my experience. I'm so grateful that you are here today. This has been just so informational for me and educational. And I really hope that it has been for our viewers as well. Um, I'm just so thankful to have you here today. And I, you know, I just want to reiterate that anybody that wants to tune in to My Color, My Experience, can DM Sydney, they can DM us on Mental Health Global Network, and we will get you guys connected because we need to be part of these conversations. Mm -hmm. And thank you so much for having me. I mean, this is one of the first platforms I've been able to speak on that's not my personal social media. So like we said, like, if you want to be a part of any of these discussions, I'm having one on Thursday, if anybody wants to be um, a part of that, it's going to talk about the new Jim Crow is the title about capitalism and mass incarceration and prison industry. So if you're interested in that, send me your emails. But thank you so, so much for allowing me to speak on things like this. And I I hope you guys continue to do your own research as well. But um, I think that this was fantastic. So I thank you a lot for giving me this space. And thank you, of, Kelly, for setting us course. up. <laughs> yes, thank you so much, Kelly, for connecting us. And we have a long way to go, Mental Health First Aid and Mental Health Global Network has a long way to go in incorporating um, you know, the statistics surrounding racial trauma and, and Black people in this country and how they're disproportionately affected by mental illness. 
um, and by police brutality, et cetera, et cetera, and how all those things impact our mental health. So, you know, we need to do better. It is our goal to do better. And thank you so much again for helping us figure out how, you know, taking the steps towards doing so. Thanks. Thanks so much. Of for course. Having. Of course, we'll be in touch. Okay. Bye, Sydney. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye. Again. Bye, everyone.